Sweet. Let's, uh, let's start with the Word of God. Um, I'm just going to read through the section we're on, Mark 5, 21 through 43. Uh, it's a chunk, but the reason we start here is this is why we are here. Not to hear from me, but to hear from God. Uh, we also have the verses that Michael will put up as I read through it. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all she had had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house and said to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus came to the leader of the synagogue Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha, come, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Sweet. Now let's approach God with a little prayer. Uh, God, I believe, I profess that you are the source of our truth, that anything that we need to hear in our lives comes from you and you alone. Um, We set aside the next half an hour, 45 minutes to simply seek you and to hear from you. Uh, Spirit, please overwhelm our distractions and give us truth. Amen. Awesome. So we're we're about a third of the way through the book of Mark. I just want to encourage you. um, It's awesome that we come here and we kind of go through it together and you hear what I have to say or what Nick and Drew has to say, but honestly, what you're going to get, how you're going to get the most out of it is if you go home and reread this this coming week and meditate upon it and seek the Spirit and His words to you and just try to figure out, all right, what do you want me to walk away with? Because I'm a man just like you. I'm a person just like you. We, you know, I don't have that much more insight to give you um, than you can find online. Um, Honestly, the reason why we get anything out of the Bible, in my opinion, is not from pastors and um, various scholars, but because the Spirit is within us and He is just stirring things up within our hearts and our minds. So just seek Him through that way. 
Okay, so it's a kind of a heavy topic tonight. Um, please just kind of stick through it because I promise at the end we'll walk away with some hope. But we're basically looking at the fact that this world is broken. We live in a very broken world. You know, here in the next three minutes, I'll give you a, a summary of the entire Bible. You know, due to Adam and Eve's choice to trust their own wisdom and logic and desires over their creator, the perfect world that God had made was broken. From this decision, our bodies became fragile, and the world we live in became filled with sickness and corruption. The broken nature of this world is very real. We all know that. And is a consequence to humanity's choice to reject God and to do things our own way. So what do we do with this? How do we handle living in a world that can steal so much of what we love? You know, whether it be the minor struggles of raising an infant or a toddler or a teenager, losing your job, or the major struggles of death and sickness and just the corruption and losing all that you care about. How do we continue to see that life is still worth living, that there still is good in this world that we can hang on to? You know, I, I think to start to answer this question, we've got to start with the, the foundational point, who is our creator? We must understand our creator more if we're going to begin to answer this question. Just because we rejected God does not mean that God rejected us. From the moment that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God spoke hope of salvation into their lives and began his redemptive plan for the human race. The entire Bible, from the beginning to the end, Genesis to Revelation, reveals a creator who longs to redeem his broken creation, who is willing to reach into our pain and provide healing, physical, emotional, spiritual healing. Jesus is the climax of God's pursuit of us. In him and through him, God reveals his intention for this broken world. It's to bring it back to its original state. A creation that is made whole, spending time with its perfect creator. You know, obviously we won't see this in entirety until Jesus returns. The idea of no tears, no pain, no sorrow, no death. It won't happen until he returns. However, during his first visit... The first time Jesus was here on earth, we were given lessons on how to embrace the love and compassion of God right now. In the midst of our brokenness, instead of being swallowed up by the darkness and despair of this world. So what we're going to do is kind of look at basically two examples of brokenness that we see here in Mark. First one is Jairus. Uh, we see in verse 22 and 23, Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came to him, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made, so that she may be made well and live. So a man's 12-year-old daughter is about to die, and she actually does end up dying in the text. You know, you can't imagine how tragic that would be. Um, there's, there's nothing I can imagine worse to have to suffer through than the death of one of my children. And here Jairus is at the feet of Jesus with this looming over top of him. And then we see a woman. In verse 25, we kind of understand her condition. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, 
then spent all that she had, and she was no but better, but rather grew worse. So it's this idea of like bleeding from her uterus nonstop for 12 years. Think about how long 12 years is. You know, and she did everything she could to combat the bleeding, but without success. And most likely, from what I've read, the physicians of the day, the type of medicine probably made things worse versus giving her comfort. You know, with this disease, with this uh, just infirmity, comes the obvious physical suffering, but potentially even more suffering socially. And again, I just want us to understand what these people are going through. According to Leviticus 15, 25 through 28, when a woman goes through this type of infirmity, she is considered ceremonially unclean for the entire length of her sickness. This means that she is unable to enter the synagogue. And in the eyes of men like the Pharisees, she is seen as less than fit to be in the presence of the clean. So with as outspoken and as harsh as, harsh as some of the Pharisees seem to be, this woman may have been publicly scorned and ridiculed for the past 12 years of her life. Most likely she had never been married or was divorced due to this condition. It's... <clears throat> is tragic but as terrible as the situations as Jairus and the woman were in the grace of God was still present I want you to hear this desperate situations strip away the reliance we have on the temporary and the incomplete and push us to what is true and unchanging let me explain it so we know that the woman had tried every suggestion a doctor could have given her and spent every penny she had looking for healing you know, I'm sure Jairus was in the same exact boat. Uh, he spared no expense, I'm sure, and sought every expert he could to bring a solution to his daughter's sickness. However, regardless of what they did or who they hired, they remained fixed in the midst of suffering. But then we see Jesus enter their worlds. You know, for Jairus, as a leader of the synagogue, he most likely watched Jesus cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue a demon who declared that Jesus was the Holy One of God. This is all prior to this passage. For both Jairus and the woman, most likely they had heard about the number of people Jesus had healed, and the fact that he had commanded the wind to stop just the night before and it obeyed him. Due to their incurable nature of their suffering, they were forced to look beyond what the best doctors and medicine could bring this is a temporary, the incomplete. And they were forced to look to the miraculous nature of their creator, which is what is true and unchanging. But in order to seek the healer, they had to be willing to make sacrifices. For Jairus, he had to be willing to sacrifice his reputation and allegiance to the religious crowd. So as a leader of the synagogue, Jairus was most likely prominent and wealthy. People saw him as a man of power and influence. We can think about people in our own lives that have that reputation. However, in verse 22 and 23, we see him act quite differently. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue, Jairus, came, and when he saw me, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly. You know, for a man to fall at his feet, it's nothing common for a man with power. You know, the, the phrase fell at his feet can also be translated as prostrated or bowed before. 
You know, one commentator put it this way. One would fall at the feet of someone of much greater status, like a king, or prostrate oneself before God. For this prominent man to humble himself in this way before Jesus was thus to recognize Jesus' power in a serious way. You know, in order to genuinely seek Jesus, Jairus had to be willing to let go of his image of being a self-made man who was in control of his life. You know, but it goes deeper with him. Think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees' view of Jesus at this point. You know, in chapter 3, two chapters earlier, they have already begun to conspire to destroy Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the men in charge of the temple. They were essentially Jairus' bosses. So for Jairus to bow down at the feet of Jesus means that he was willing to risk his job and his sizable income in order to get help for his daughter. For the woman, you know, she had to be willing to surround herself with people that saw her as worthless, rejected by God, and did everything they could not to come in contact with her. Let me explain it. So in order to get close enough to Jesus, the woman had to wiggle her way through a large crowd of people and by doing so touch many. It's easy to picture. Leviticus stated that whomever she touched was considered unclean as well for seven days. That means that she would have been seen as cancerous as she wormed her way through the crowd. Even more so, to touch a prominent and holy teacher would mean that she would make him unclean. And this was unheard of by most. And I'll just read it in 27, 28. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched him. For she had said, if I but touch his clothes cloak, I will be made well. You know, but regardless of what they had to sacrifice, they both were willing to seek out the healer. Due to the pain and hurt that they saw before their eyes and carried within their hearts, they were willing to risk what they had in order to tangibly act upon their faith. Faith that Jesus had power to redeem their brokenness. All right. Now we're getting to the most important part. And I promise we'll get to application. The reason why we spend most of the time on the Bible is because it's the word of God. You don't need my application. You just need to hear the word. So Jesus' response. So with Jairus, Jesus, once Jesus had heard his request, he immediately stopped where he was going and went with Jairus. Let's look in 24. It's just five words. So he, Jesus, went with him. That means that Jesus wasn't more concerned with the teaching of the large crowds or accomplishing his agenda with the day of the day. He didn't care that Jairus was most likely associated with the religious figures that sought to destroy him. Jesus saw Jairus' genuine desire to seek his power to heal and immediately offered him hope. And just take a moment. Why do we care what Jesus' response was? Right? We gotta think that Mark is a historical document based off of eyewitnesses. And they just wrote down what they saw. And what we've been told is that God does not change. And God was the one directing Jesus, and Jesus is an example of who God is, who God is in a physical form. So what we see about Jesus now, we can just assume that that's what we get from Jesus today. So the way that he responded to them is going to be the same way that he responds to us. Does that make sense? So for the woman, when she acted upon her faith, that touching Jesus would heal her, immediately God healed her of what was previously incurable. 
It's incredible. So verse 29, immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Just just awe-inspiring. As this occurred, Jesus was aware that God had healed someone through him and he desired to know who it was. We'll just reread the verses 30 through 32. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. You know, in that moment, the woman knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus' power and his authority over the brokenness was very real. So she humbly fell at his feet in order to tell him what had happened. Verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. You know, at this point, it's kind of interesting to think culturally, Jesus and everyone with him knew that Jesus had been made ceremonially unclean that he had been touched by a woman that hemorrhaged night and day. They knew that this holy man was no longer ritually pure and would be unable to enter the synagogue. For most teachers in this day, it would have been a terrible moment. Shame would have fallen upon them. But Jesus reacts far differently than most teachers would have. Let's look at 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. You know, instead of rebuking her for her behavior, which is what we saw the Pharisees continually do, he embraces her because of her faith, regardless of her state. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus refers to somebody by the name daughter. It's an intimate word that is full of sentiment. You can imagine that now. Somebody looking at you and saying son or daughter. Instead of burying her in shame, he overwhelms her with love and acceptance. You know, the story continues with Jairus, obviously. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, Jesus, some of the people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You know, imagine what this was like for Jairus. It had to be a bomb just going off in his heart, hearing that his daughter is now truly dead. Um, But, Again, focusing on Jesus, instead of continuing on and simply going and raising her from the dead like he desired to do, he stops and he speaks directly to Jairus. Again, see who Jesus is in this moment. Verse 36, but overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. You know, as I've meditated on this, and this verse has stuck with me heavily over the last week, it seems that Jesus' desire was not to simply cure the little girl. He desired, as with the woman, to show Jairus that his genuine faith would overcome all the brokenness of this world. He wanted Jairus to understand that his trust in God would win the day, even against the worst fears. You know, in both of Jesus' response to the woman and Jairus, we see that his love for the individual far outweighed his desire for the respect of the crowds. You know, verse 37 and on, um, Jesus does continue to the house and he raises the, the girl from the dead, which is incredible. Okay, so let's kind of walk into a little bit more application. Um. I just want to remind you that this is, I just said it, but I want to say it again. This is a historical account written by eyewitnesses. 
That means we're just simply reading history. And from my experience, it's only been 34 years, but it seems like God never changes, which I can point you to so many verses that say that. But it also seems that humanity doesn't change much either. You know, we have Facebook and other things that they didn't have back then, but we struggle with the same, they, same thing they struggled with. You know, the flesh within us is so similar and the brokenness of this world has not diminished. And so the application is so vivid and so there's so much that's applicable in here. Um, you know, I'm just going to give us three different points to apply. One, we encounter brokenness in our lives. It's obvious, right? We will encounter brokenness in our lives. You know, there's story after story that'll just break your heart. Um, you know, I uh, I always hesitate heavily to ever share my own stories when I'm teaching. Um, it's just not the way I seem to be designed. But God just kept bringing my story to mind that he wanted me to share it, I think, this week. So, you know, back in April, like eight months ago, um, due to a little bit of oversight on my end and my partner, I... Uh, I got to see the brokenness of this world rear its ugly head and just kind of look me straight in the eyes. You know, I fell 40 feet while climbing, um, got a traumatic brain injury, and spent a month in the hospital. Um, and, you know, this, at that moment, prior to that moment, everything was going great. We were on vacation with my family. I was teaching down at a Bible school, just kind of taking one of the instructors out to kind of mentor him. Um, and then the next moment, Everything had changed, and the brokenness of this world became so vivid. And not just for me, but for my family, my wife, right? uh, my friends, fam- you guys here as well. Um, it was just so obvious that, in an undeniable way, that this world is broken. So one, we will encounter brokenness in our lives. Two, medicine, doctors, and support groups can only do so much. You know, you see it laid out here with this woman doing everything she could to heal her disease and unable to to even touch it. Um, You know, for the first few days after my accident, my life here on earth was in limbo. Um, Doctors did what they could, but had really no control over how things would roll out. Um, Doctors would talk to my wife about me being possibly brain dead, having an entirely different personality, being unable to speak or walk, um, but they were really unable to say anything with confidence because they had such little control on how things would roll out. You know, even after I was stabilized and improved dramatically, it was quite obvious that there was no medical professional that could fix me. Um, doctors and professionals would come in and they would try to advise me on the best way to live, like eat a lot of blueberries and avocados and chia seeds, right? But they couldn't do anything to simply make my brain go back to normal. Um, doctors and medicine and everything that they bring in support groups are incredible and they're so good at supporting us. However, we have to understand that no matter their degrees, their experience, or the money that you pay them, they cannot ultimately fix the brokenness of this world. Same is true for support groups that help fight off addiction. There's just, there's a broken at the core of our reality that nothing we create can truly fix. That's point two. Trust me, point three is far more uh, uplifting. 
Point three, we have direct access to our creator through Jesus. We have direct access to our creator through Jesus. Michael, if you'd put up Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. This is what I really want us to focus on. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that way we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. So the throne of grace is God himself. Incredible. So can God, our our creator, the one who made you and me, who created this moment, who allowed the sun to rise today, the crops to grow, to fill our bellies, can he physically heal? Absolutely. We read about it in the Bible. There are literally millions of stories about people here and now, not in this place, but in our reality, in our world at this time frame that have been healed physically by God. It does happen. It's so easy for us to just assume that this was something that God did back then, but it's just not the case, you know? For me, you know, even though the doctors were unable to do much to determine my outcome, within 72 hours after my accident, I was moved out of the ICU. Within a week, I was in the brain rehab center, and within a month, I was back home running my business, even teaching down here. Incredible. You know, why did God do this? I have no clue. No clue. Why Why did he decide that I could continue to live, continue to enjoy my family? I have no idea. But I do know a big part of this was the power of prayer. Not my prayer, but the prayer of you guys, the prayer of my family, prayer of people all across the country. You know, I don't understand prayer at all. I, I, I actually understand even less now having gone through this, but people were willing to set aside whatever they were doing for a moment to boldly approach the throne of God to find grace and, and mercy for me in that place. You know, beyond that, all I know is that without God's direct intervention, the brokenness of this world would have won the day in my life. Bit, you know, a bigger question one that is a little bit more applicable for all of us. Does God always heal those who are suffering? Does God always heal those who are suffering? Um, we got so many examples in our lives where that is not the case. You know, even going biblically, 11 out of the 12 disciples um, were, were killed, were martyred. So it's obvious that God does not always heal those who are broken. However, he does not stand idly by. This is what I want us to walk away with. Even when God chooses not to heal our physical pain, he overwhelms those who seek him with love, joy, peace, and patience. You know, from my example, talking to every single one of my family members, I've heard stories of them being overwhelmed by God's presence in the first few days after my accident. 
Oh, it's just incredible. This continually brings me to tears every time I ask them one of those questions. But last night, um, I decided just to ask my wife what it was like for her the first you know, three days um, as she watched her husband lie in a coma in a hospital, having no clue how it would all roll out. Um, and it was just amazing, the connection of her experience with the, the verses we've been looking at. Um, first, she, shot, she sought God above all else. Um, that night when I was laying there in a coma in the hospital bed, she grabbed my hand and in the presence of friends who aren't Christians and other people standing behind her, she just started telling God, I trust you with Evan over and over. God, I trust you with Evan. I was in the hands of medical professionals, but she didn't place her confidence in them. She placed it in God. God, I trust you with Evan. You know, that next day, as she's hearing the doctors telling her all of these possible tragic outcomes and just collapsed to the floor, you know, God led her to Psalms 18, 1 and 2. I'm going to put that up. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised so I shall be saved from my enemies. She said that as she was reading this, she just felt this peace and love just overwhelm her. You know, I thought about like Jairus, Jairus walking, finding out his daughter's dead and Jesus turns to him and says, do not fear, only believe. And for Rosalind, he says, no, no, I am your rock your fortress, your deliverer, you can take refuge in me. You know, this brought her to be willing to openly say, you know, everything has been stripped away. She had no idea what would become of me, how it would all end up. And she said, everything has been stripped away. All I have is God. Even if things do not get better, God is all I have. After reading this verse, after experiencing what she was experiencing spiritually, she decided to say, I'm not going to choose fear. I'm going to choose my faith. I'm going to choose to believe God regardless of how things roll out. You know, and two months after, um, Rosalind was quite overwhelmed by, I guess you could call it like PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, just anxiety and fear and all these things. And I could just see it was just kind of shackling her. Um, but of course, God, through Jesus, through his spirit, does what he did here. He spoke directly into her life. And he pointed out things that were keeping her bound to the fear that this could happen again. And he overwhelmed her and unlocked her with his control and his power over all things. And I got to see my wife like physically come back to herself in like a two-week period. Incredible, you know, and for me, you know, even though God did so much with my body and brain, the past eight months have not been without hardship. You know, when you uh, take a shot to the noggin hard enough, it kind of changes things in your world. You know, my energy level, mental energy level, is not nearly what it used to be, so therefore I cannot live my life the way that I used to live my life. And often I have an inability to access my vocabulary. A word will be right there that just says what I want to say. and can be very simple. And it just won't come out. 
And so in that, I've had to struggle with not being able to do what I love to do, be energetic, work hard, and communicate with people. You know, however, in the midst of my personal anguish, God has continually breathed his grace into my life. He has taught me things far deeper than I've ever learned. He has taught me legitimately that I have to trust in him alone, that I can no longer trust in my own mind and abilities, my own talents, because they, a lot of days, just don't exist. But he is there. He has taught me to be grateful for life today, that the sun has risen and I have done nothing to cause that to happen. And he has given me another day to enjoy him. And he's also taught me to listen to his voice as he guides me through the day. Because my voice is just far too cluttered, almost incoherent at times, but he just speaks in with such clarity. You know, going through this, you know, Bible verses, I'll show you one, say it as well, but going through this has shown me that I think part of the reason that God doesn't necessarily heal everyone that seeks him is so we can grow in our understanding of who we are and who God is that we are incomplete, that we are broken, and that he is perfect, and that he is whole, and that he loves us so intensely. You know, Romans 5, 1 through 5, it's a good spot to go for it. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. You know, prior to this incident, I always just assumed that the sufferings that he was referring to were like being like almost like martyrdom, being persecuted due to his faith. But... I'm starting to realize that, you know, God allows the brokenness of this world to continually affect our lives. And I think a big reason for it is because sufferings strip away our reliance on all that is incomplete and untrue. And it forces us to look to our creator, to what is whole, to what is real, to what is true, unchanging. All right, so how do we wrap this up? I guess let's just go back to that question. And Michael, I think I had it in there. What do we do with this, the fact that this world is broken? How do we handle living in a world that can steal so much of what we love? You know, I, uh, I just want to lead you back to verse 36, where Jesus is talking to Jairus. He simply says, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. You know, I understand the power of fear. I understand how it rolls into our minds and our emotions. But it's up to us if we allow it to take control. We have been given free will. God allows us to make choices, and this is a big one of those. Do I choose to be a slave to fear, or do I choose to believe? Believe also is trust. Do I choose fear or do I choose to trust God? 
You know, think about some of the things that the Bible tells us we can trust. That God is sovereign. That means he's in utter control over everything. But not only is he sovereign, he is love. He doesn't have love for us, but he is love. So he knows your entire life, what's going to happen, past, present, and future. But he also looks at you with this intense father-like love and desires to do nothing but pour his goodness into your world. We're also told that we are God's children. If you choose to be, you can be a child of God, an heir of all his goodness. We've all been children. A lot of us have children. Think about the creator of everything looking at you as if you are his child. And we've been given his spirit. This always boggles me, the presence of God himself in our own souls as our comforter and our guide. We've been told that we only experience what God allows us to experience because he is sovereign. Things that happen to us only happen because God allows them to. which I think that needs to continue into the next thought. Whatever we experience, it doesn't surprise God. He knows it's going to happen. God's grace continues to be poured out upon us and will refine us into his image, how he originally designed us to be. So regardless of what God allows to happen to your life, he is going to continue to pour his grace and goodness on you in order to refine your soul. You know, in the last one, guys can start to come up if you want. Every moment of your life, God is with you. Think about that one. Every moment of your life, God is with you. He surrounds us and he desires to dwell within you. Now it's easy just to allow that Christianese to take over like, oh yeah, God's everywhere. Think about that. God is the creator of everything we have ever seen and will ever see. The air that we breathe, right? The oxygen was knit together by him. Every beautiful aspect of your body and the way it works was created and designed by him. Your mind, your emotions, all of it designed by him. And he surrounds us. He desires to be within us, to guide us, to care for us, to provide for us. Whatever this broken world throws at you, he never leaves. You know, as these guys start to play, just take a moment and ponder what you believe about God. Just fix in on some aspect of what you believe about God and meditate upon it. Let it sink deeply, far past any of the fears that this broken world can throw at you. And simply believe. Believe.